are looking this morning at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, but for the sake of context, I'm going to begin back in verse 1. And as I've already noted, the apostle is now turning to application, and we saw last Lord's Day that he begins applying the truth of the gospel to the life of the church on the whole, very very important that he begins among the fellowship of the saints here in Ephesus for all other local churches. And now he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And then the passage we're looking at this morning, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I wonder if I asked you this morning, to write down on a piece of paper what are those essential things that are necessary if a true Christian church is going to continue to be a true Christian church. What you would write down. What are the essential things? What are the really important things? And and no doubt there are many things that you could write down that would be true and right. It was interesting as I was preparing for the sermon, I came across a sermon preached by John L. Gerardo. You probably know his name. He pastored in the mid-19th century in Charleston, one of the great theologians and pastors in church history. And on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of Second Presbyterian Church downtown, where his friend Thomas Smythe was pastor, also a very great pastor and theologian in his day, uh, he was invited to preach on the 50th anniversary in 1860. And and John Algerido chose this passage that we're looking at this morning. And his essential argument was that there are three things that are necessary 
three things that are necessary for a church to continue as a true and faithful church. He said one of those things is that you must have Christ in the church. The second thing is that the church needs the gift of ministers that Jesus gives to the church. And the third thing is that ministers and people understand that they need one another and that there is a mutual embrace for the good of the body and the building up of the body. And that if any one of those three things is missing, the church will not continue as a faithful church. And and you know how we know that he's right? Because church history proves that. When churches stop preaching the Lord Jesus as he is set out in scripture, when they devalue the ministry of the officers that Jesus has given to his church, or when the officers and the people do not see the union they have with one another and the need that they have for one another, the church does not continue as a faithful church. Those are the three essential vital things. And so this morning we want to look at this passage and consider those three things. We want to Consider first Christ as the giver of the gifts of the church. Secondly, we want to consider the diversity of gifts that he gives the church. And then third, the goal of those gifts in the church. The giver of the gifts, the diversity of the gifts, and the goal of the gifts. Well, Paul has talked about the essential unity the church has. He has said that that we all, because of our union with Christ, are united to one another. And therefore, we are to live in such a way as to promote that unity. By the way... Nothing, if if you want to make a minister really upset, labor to destroy the unity of the church by gossip, slander, and bitterness. That's That's the easiest way to ruin a church and a ministry, is to air all your discontentments, to be disruptive in not maintaining the unity of the the spirit and the bondage of peace. And Paul's intent, the first application, the very first thing Paul says when moving from what the gospel is to now what application it has in the life of the church, he says, endeavor to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That is the first and most important thing. There's an essential unity. And yet Paul is also going to now say there is an essential diversity in the life of the church. There is an essential diversity. There are differing gifts. There are differing parts of the body of Christ. And everyone has to play their part. And and we need to embrace the diversity as much as we embrace the unity. And so as Paul begins to now transition to the diversity... Notice he says in verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, it's very interesting. Paul will not take one step forward in applying the gospel without going right back to Christ. It's very interesting. Before he makes a further application, he says that the grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, he's doing that because... He wants us to always keep our eyes focused on the fact that the Lord Jesus is the head of the church. It is his church. It is not the minister's church. It is not your church. Let me say that emphatically. I hear many people speaking about local churches as if they somehow have possession of it. There is only one who has possession of the church, and that is Jesus. Jesus. 
It is his church. He is the builder of the church. He is the king of the church. He is the only head of the church. What happens in a church only happens because he has determined that this is good for it to happen. And what Paul is doing here in verse 7 is he's saying, listen, while there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, there is a diversity of grace that Christ has given to his people. And, and he is distributing gifts to his people. Um, I want to come back to that in a second, but I want us to focus here on what Paul does in setting up the gifts that Christ gives his people. Notice, they are given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Notice verse 8, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, he gave gifts to men. Now, this is one of the more difficult Old Testament citations in the New Testament. It is from Psalm 68, which is a very difficult psalm. I'm going to do something I swore I wouldn't do on Facebook. There are more hapex legomenas in Psalm 68 than any other psalm. That means one word used in one place in that psalm. I read that this morning. I couldn't resist. I'm sorry, y'all. But, but there, it's a difficult psalm in itself. It is a psalm of God's victory. It is, a, it is a war psalm. It's a psalm in which God is the victor. God comes home triumphant. God triumphs over his enemies. It's a psalm that looks back on the victories of the Lord over his enemies in the Old Covenant. And it's a psalm that looks forward to a coming victory that is being predicted, a victory that is going to look like these victories, but is going to be greater than those victories. And right in that psalm, when it talks about God's victories over his enemies, uh, the psalmist says he ascended on high. He ascended on high. It's, it's, it's the picture of a king coming back from war and, and, and being exalted over his enemies. And, and then the, the psalm says he, he led captivity captive. He, he, he got spoils from the victory, just like the kings in the Old Testament, David's spoil. He would come back and he would have more possessions and people. And there were tangible evidences that he had been victorious. And that psalm talks about God ascending as the victorious warrior king over his enemies and, and him bringing uh, those who were in captivity out of captivity in a long train in a procession behind him as he ascends. Now, that psalm will go on to say he received gifts from men. He received gifts from men. And again, the picture is that having come home from the, the battle, those that he had set free, they, they pay homage to him. They, they, they put their gifts at his feet. They, 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 they show him the respect that is due to him. He, he received gifts from men. But notice what Paul does here, something very interesting. He changes the sense of Psalm 68 and that, that particular verse. And he says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. He didn't just receive gifts from men, he gave gifts to men. Now, Paul is applying Psalm 68 to Christ, and he's saying in the ascension of Christ, 
after he conquered his enemies on the cross, after he burst the gates of hell and came out of the tomb on the third day, finally when he ascended into heaven, he was seen to be the victorious king that came to conquer Satan's sin and death. And that is the ultimate victory that God has over his enemies. All those Old Testament victories were just little precursors to the victory of victories that Jesus would win by himself through his work on the cross and in the resurrection. And yet, notice this, Paul sees something of a redemptive historical shift. When he, when Christ descended on high, he led a host of captives. He gave gifts to men. Now, this is the idea because you're in this. You're in Psalm 68. Who were the captives? We were the captives. Who were we, who were we in bondage to? Satan and sin. And Christ released us from captivity. And he led a host of captives captive to himself. When he ascended on high, it's as if he drew behind him this long line of men and women and boys and girls. If you're a believer, this, you're in that line. And he drew you with him. And then out of that great company of redeemed saints, he said, I'm going to give this one and this one and this one and this one and this one back to my church as a gift to them. And notice what Paul does. He says in verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers. So Christ is the victorious one. Christ has conquered. Christ has delivered you from captivity. And this is amazing. He cares so much about you that out of that great company of the redeemed, he decides from all eternity, I'm going to select a few of these to be ministers of the word among my people to make sure that they are cared for, shepherded, and matured in the faith. Now, what does that mean? Um, that means that we can never think of the person and work of Christ apart from what he's doing in the life of his church. There are many well-meaning Christians that don't think they need the local church. They think they don't need church membership. They just want to be sort of floating, you know, free agents. And, and what this passage is saying is that there is structure in the church that Christ has set in place as a gift to his people. Now, I don't know about you, but I do not want to snub my nose at the gift of Christ. Because if Jesus gives you a gift, you better embrace it. Because to demean those gifts, to reject those gifts, is ultimately to say to Christ, I know better than you, and you will not tell me what I need. And yet he is the giver, of the gifts that he gives back to his people from out of that great company of his people. You know, John Stott, speaking about this harmony between Christ and his church, he says this, he says, the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. The church is not a divine afterthought. It's not an accident of history. Stott says, on the contrary, the church is God's new community. The reason we are committed to the church is because God is so committed to the church. You see, the reason why we should love the people of God and the local church in which God has put us is because Christ loves 
the people of God that he has gathered together and appointed ministers to care for and to shepherd. That's why we love the church. You know, I, I fear, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go out here if I offend somebody today, I'm sorry. The church does not exist to meet all your needs. Can I say that as emphatically as I can this morning? The church is not here to meet all your needs. The church does not exist for you to have a social club, a notch on a social belt. I have met professing Christian after professing Christian after professing Christian who, by all, by all accounts of what they say and do, go to churches that are unfaithful because it's going to help them advance in society. The church is neither here to meet all your needs, nor does the church exist for you to have a social notch on your belt. The church exists because it's the body of Jesus, which he loves, which he cares for, and which is at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. The very center. Um, I want us to consider here this diversity of gifts. Notice Verse 11, now, we have recently talked about the need for spiritual gifts in the church and how different members have different gifts. Paul is not going to set that out in this passage. He's going to speak in this passage about a very specific set of gifts that he gives his people. And that set of gifts is faithful ministers of the word. Now, now there are four or five differing offices of the ministry of the word that Paul touches on here. Notice in verse 11, he gave the apostles and the prophets. Now, I'm, I'm here to tell you this. I've told you this before. I'm here to tell you there are no more apostles. There are no more apostles. And I'm here to tell you there are no more prophets. They are foundational. They, were, they served a purpose. They were part of the foundation of the church. How do we know that? Turn back to chapter 2, verse 20. And notice there in Ephesians 2.20 that, that Paul says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It's really helpful when Paul just sets it out explicitly. Apostles and prophets are foundational. The church is built on their doctrine. It's built on the apostolic doctrine in scripture. And, and they were gifts that Jesus gave his people. Now, again, you would think this would be self-evident. But, but think about almost every church that Paul planted rejected him. I was thinking this morning about what a gift Jonathan Edwards had been to the church in America, and yet, I don't know if you know this, his ministry in Northampton ended because that congregation drove him out because of one little tiny pastoral mistake. There's some children doing bad things. I know children do bad things. Children in the church doing bad things. Other children were tattletales. They told on them. Edwards made the mistake of one morning getting up in the pulpit and, and calling, saying, we're going to have a meeting today, and I'd like so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so to come forward. And he called all the children together, and the parents of the children who tattletailed against these bad children, they got angry that Edwards made it seem like their children had done something wrong, so they ended his ministry. One of the greatest pastor theologians in church history had his ministry ended because the people couldn't stand that he made a pastoral mistake. The, the churches that Paul planted rejected him for false apostles. 
And yet, Paul says, listen, the apostles and the prophets are Christ's gift to the church. And then he says the evangelist. And then he says the shepherds. And then he says the teachers. Now, what's interesting is these are all word offices. Every single thing that each of these groups were to do was to faithfully minister the word of God. Which means the most important thing in the life of any church for its continuance is the faithful ministry of the word of God. So that if a church is going to continue, it needs the gift offices that Christ has given as a gift to his church. Um, Sinclair Ferguson, he has this great statement. Listen to this. He says, it's through the ministry of the word that the Lord is most pleased to chip the edges off my warped personality to make me more like Jesus and to do that in all other believers in order that like a master mason, he may slide us together with all our differences. Why, why is Ephesians 4.11 so important for us to grasp and appreciate? Because what God is doing in his church is he is, he is shaping and forming and molding and conforming his people through the ministry of the word to become what he intends for them to become collectively in the same body. Um, if I can say this reverently this morning, um, n- no one who professes faith in Christ will ever in this life get to a place where you don't need to be under the ministry of the word and the ministry of those Christ has given his gifts to minister that word. You will never in this life get to a place where you don't need that. In fact, I think what Paul is actually arguing here is that it is the most essential thing to the continuance of the church. Faithful ministers of the word. Eric Alexander says this, the reason why so many within the evangelical church these days are so easily seduced by some false teaching is that we have been undernourished in the truth of God's word. And if I can say this this morning, um, there are no believers that ever have too much of the word of God. You can never get to a place where you have had too much of the ministry of God's word. In fact, the great problem is that most professing believers are undernourished in the ministry of God's word, not overnourished on it. And so Paul is highlighting that this diversity of gifts is, first and foremost, a diversity of ministers in the church. Now, Paul is going to do something throughout the rest of this section, verses 12 through 16, where he is going to focus on what is then going to happen in the life of the church. We've seen the giver of the gifts. We've considered the gifts. Now, what is the goal of the gifts in the life of the church? Well, notice that Paul has two things in mind. There are two things that he wants to address that are what we could say frailties in the life of any local church. What, what are the, these, are the, these are the pressure points, the weak points, where at any given moment, a church could cease being a faithful church because of these two things. And, and one of those things is instability. Notice, notice what he says in verse 14. The ministers are given as gifts to the church so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, 
in deceitful schemes. You see, what Paul is worried about in any church, in this church, in the church in Ephesus, in every church, is instability. That there is always the danger of Christians just being driven around by every wind of doctrine. And you know what, y'all? Let me say this this morning. The internet just magnifies that problem by like a million. Because you can get on there and read all kinds of stuff and have all kinds of internet pastors and opportunistic digital hirelings and and they can they can shape the way you think about things and and i look i mean i saw this in 2020 when you shut the church down give people the internet and a stimulus check they're getting driven around by every wind of doctrine it happens paul understands there's a danger of instability And these gifts are there to meet that instability, to strengthen the church, to strengthen the church. And then there is the danger of immaturity. Notice verse 15. Paul says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The the goal is maturity. There's always need for more spiritual maturity in the life of the church. You know, Paul uses that illustration of children. Notice verse 14, so that we may no longer be children. Um, There are times when Jesus will say things like, unless you become like a child, you will not enter the kingdom. There is an essential child-likeness that we ought to be embodying in our trust of him. But here, the Apostle Paul is saying we ought not be children. Um, imagine, there was a cartoon when I was a kid. It was, a, it was a, a baby who was all grown up, wearing a diaper, smoking a cigar. You probably know the name of this character, cartoon character. And, and just how unfitting that idea is that, that the baby never grows into the child. The child never grows into the man. There's never that, that, that maturation that needs to happen. And Paul envisions the body of Christ. He envisions the people of God collectively coming together, needing to be matured in the faith. They need stability. They need maturity. And so the ministry of the word is there to constantly press on the people of God This is how Christ is maturing us. This is how Christ is causing us to grow. This is what's needed for our growth in grace. This is how Christ is accomplishing that among us. That that is vital if we are going to grow. And it's not something that can just happen one time. I I was talking to a fellow minister this week, a mentor, and I said, do you ever feel like you're just kind of talking into the air when you preach? And he said, every Sunday. But every Sunday, he said, I, I preach on one thing. I leave the pulpit. I go out to the narthex, and the people are talking about the exact opposite thing I told them we shouldn't be doing. And, I, and he said, I'm like, did, did, did you not, like five minutes ago, did you not hear that? But but the point is, that's true of all of us. We need a continual teaching of God's word to build us up, to make us mature. And, And we're never going to have that full maturity in this life. Notice what Paul says. What is the goal? What is the goal of the gifts that Christ gives to his church? Notice this back in verse 13, that we may attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, here's what that means. That means that we are ever needing God to mature us through the ministry of his word in this life, but that as we are the body of Christ, that what should happen is the likeness of Jesus should more and more and more start to show when others look on our fellowship. You see, what's the end goal? Notice this. This is fascinating. Back in chapter 4, verse 7, we're told that Christ is the giver of the gifts, and the end goal is that the fullness of Christ would be manifested in the lives of his people. Why has Christ so wisely chosen to give gifts of ministers to teach his word to the people of God until he comes again because he wants his image represented in the spiritual growth and maturity of the people of God. Now what that means is that I need you and you need me. It means you need others in this body and they need you. Um, It means that you will never be able to do it on your own. And in fact, I would argue, if you try to do it outside of the church, it will never happen in your life. This is absolutely necessary. Um, you know, how, how revolutionary this would be if we, if, we had that, if we had that perspective that Christ has of his church. This is Christ's work. It's Christ's perspective of his church. It's Christ's organization of his church. Um, I want to say this finally, that um, if we take an inventory, a collective inventory of Church Creek, our place in it, the gifts God's given us, how we're using them, how we view one another, we take that inventory check, then then what we ought to say at the end, notice the last verse, verse 16, Paul says the end goal is that each part is working properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So, so the, the goal of ministers of the word that have been given by Christ as gifts to his church is so that every part is working properly. Everything's intact. Every part is doing what it's supposed to do in the body. And when that's happening, and that beautiful spiritual diversity is serving the unity, the body, Paul says, builds itself up in love. Um, I want to ask you, when you think about the things that you are most committed to, is that at the top of the list? that you want to do your part in this body under the ministers Christ has appointed to speak the truth in love, to build up the other members so that the body is building itself up in love. Um, You know, if, if this happens, if this happens, it becomes a radical, a radical paradigm shift for the American church.
because I think, and I'm going to close with this, I think if, if most people in the American church were honest and they were asked the question, what is necessary for the church to continue, they would say a rockin' band and an awesome building and a great staff, and they would list off things that in and of themselves may not be wrong, but are not the really essential things. Um, these, these are the essential things. Christ is the giver of gifts to the church. He has given ministers to help build up the church, and he is calling the church to do their part, individually members, to make the body grow that it builds itself up in love. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you that in your eternal wisdom, you and your son determined that you would build your church on earth. We thank you and praise you that you determined that you would have us to be members of it, members of the body of Christ, members of one another. We thank you and praise you, Lord Jesus, that in your wisdom you gave gifts of ministers to faithfully minister your word to your people. And we pray, our God, that Christ, the gift of faithful ministers of the word, and a loving community building itself up would be indicative of this church. Would you please give us that mindset that we would value these things more than anything else? Would you make us a people who love and embrace, Lord Jesus, what you love and what you embrace? what you have done and are doing among us. And so we thank you and praise you. We pray that you would remind us of these things and help us to live in light of them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.